Let's turn together to John chapter 9. As you turn there, um, next Sunday is really the kickoff for Camp Living Hope. Um, and uh, so this is be the week when a lot of like things start to come together, a lot of prep, a lot of those kinds of things. Joe Bennett has been the camp pastor for the last couple of years. He'll be with us uh, next Sunday morning. He'll be preaching uh, to kind of get things rolling. And that whole next week is going to be insanity around here. It's going to be amazing. Uh, we do still have uh, spots. And so um, if you know someone uh, who doesn't have a church home, and this would be a wonderful opportunity for them to get to know us and us get to know them, uh, please uh, don't hesitate to send them the link, get them signed up. Um, and so the next couple of weeks are going to be pretty, pretty awesome. This morning is sort of a, an extension of last Sunday. The text will be very similar. Um, uh, last week, looked at, at Jesus, uh, him healing a man who was, uh, was deaf and unable to speak. This morning, we're going to look at a similar miracle. I referenced it last week. And really just felt that God was like, hey, let's just couple those together. And um, so you'll see some themes that are, that are similar. And in a lot of this stuff, if you've been around for a couple of years, these are going to be kind of like familiar ideas. Uh, if you're sort of new around here, even for the first time, uh, these, are, these are the kinds of things that we, we really try to return to. Like when you look at Jesus, who he is, his life, his ministry, uh, our salvation in him alone, all the things we've been singing about this morning, like that's true north for us. Like, that's the, that's the compass that we need, especially when you look around the stuff that's happening in our world, and uh, you're like, what is even going on? Um, you come back, and you open up your Bible, and if you don't know where to turn, go find something written in red and read it, right? Like, that's, that's how you find your way, and uh, I feel like last Sunday and this Sunday, that's what we've needed is to be like, okay, let me, let me look at the face of Jesus again. Let me listen to his words, let me observe his actions, let me see his heart uh, as he reveals to us who the Father is and what the kingdom of God looks like. Um, that's really what we need. And so let's, let's look here in John chapter 9. Um, it's one of my favorite stories to study, to teach through, to just think about in general. Um, and we're just going to go a little bit at a time, kind of let the narrative unfold itself. So start at verse 1, chapter 9. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 to get started. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay? Now, they're asking, in a, in a broad stroke kind of way, they're asking a very common question is why, you know? We ask ourselves that all the time in all kinds of situations. Why? Why did this happen? But their question reflects a very common way of thinking within Judaism and especially in the ancient Near East. Like this was uh, not only with those, uh, not only with the Israelites, but also the surrounding nations. They were, there was this connection that they were making between any kind of suffering and the sin that they think caused that suffering. They were linking them together. And so for the disciples, it seems like a kind of a bizarre question of like, why did this happen? Either this man did something wrong or his parents did, uh, but that has to be the, the cause and effect of this situation. 
Um, and so while we look at that and think that's a very strange question, at that, in this part of the world at this time, it was apparently a very common assumption. Um, and so let's, let's observe this as a story. They're walking along, come upon a man, blind from birth, one of the disciples, we don't know who. Um, I'm wondering if it's John because he wrote the book and the disciples were not too afraid to sort of throw themselves under the bus because this is a horrible thing to say in front of someone, right? Like this tells us a couple of things about, about the disciples. Um, one, it tells us that they were very self-absorbed, right? Like who says, who asked this question in front of the person? Like who does that? You have to be wrapped up in your own little world at that point. Maybe they were trying to impress Jesus as if Jesus was going to be like, wow, that's a very profound question. I can't believe you had the theological depth to bring that up right here. Uh, I kind of feel like he was looking at him like, seriously? You know? I wonder if the guy was like, hey, you know I can hear you, right? Like I'm right here. Um, you have to be self-absorbed to ask that question in the presence of the person that you're wondering about, right? Second thing that it tells us is that they thought they were better than him. You only ask that question in his presence with that kind of background of cause and effect if you think that you're better than him. Because what there is, the, the subtext is, well, he was blind from birth. We all were born with sight. Therefore, he must be worse than us. Right? There is a hierarchy in this question, especially being asked in front of him. So they're self-absorbed. They thought on some level they were better than him. And the third thing it tells us is that didn't, they didn't see him as a person. They didn't see him as someone made in the image of God who deserved dignity and deserved respect. They saw him as a blind man, not as a man. They saw his problem, his struggle, his however you want to think of it. They labeled him. They didn't see him as a fellow image bearer. And so that self-absorption and that superiority and that like failure to see him for who he is, uh, all kind of wrapped up in one question. And obviously I'm reading a lot into the question, but I kind of think it's all there for a reason. You know? But that pattern, that's not really like a new, a new thing. Like those three things that are reflected there, we really see them in culture today as well, right? Like, our culture has trained us and conditioned us to fall into that same deal. Like all of the marketing and all of our politicians and our news media and our social media has trained us to do the same thing, right? To be self-absorbed, to feel superior to other people, or sometimes to feel inferior to other people, which makes you search for people that you are superior to so you can kind of see where you stack up. And it's conditioned us to see people um, not as people, but as issues, you know, the things that they stand for, the things that they say, the things that they do, the, the way that they look, all this kind of stuff. We're, we're conditioned, we're trained, and here's why. It's because all the marketing geniuses and all the news media geniuses and all the politician geniuses and all those folks, when I say genius, I mean like truly, like they have figured out how to take like modern um, mediums and tap into our vanity. 
they have masterfully figured out how to do that. And we just fall for it over and over and over again to the point where we are conditioned, which is why we can't really be apart from our smart devices for very long, right? Like we, we have to have it. It's directly tied to the rise in depression and anxiety, like all of those things, because we're at the mercy of these companies who have figured out, oh, everyone's super, super vain. So let's just exploit that so we can make more money. Um, so what we see in the disciples is not like this, like, how dare they kind of thing. It's like, oh, that's kind of, they're kind of a case study in like human behavior. Like we all kind of do this. And really, all you have to do is just listen to how our culture, like how we speak about one another in our culture. Here's, here's what I mean. Think about how people speak of the other political party. Think about how both, both groups talk about one another. So obviously, well, there's a right and a left. There's a, you know, the Republican, conservatives, whatever, and there's the left-leaning liberal Democrats, however you want to think of it. But they speak so terribly of each other, don't they? And they blame each other. And so as that's happening, and they kind of force you to feel like you have to pick a lane, it ends up being like an us and them kind of thing. And even if you feel politically homeless, you still like, you're almost like, it's almost like you don't really have that option because it's this us them thing back and forth. They speak so terribly of one another. These liberals are ruining everything. And like all these conservatives, they just want to burn the Capitol down or whatever it may be. And they speak back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's hard to not get a little swept up in that sometimes. Or how people speak about the other, I wrote this one down just for fun, like the other generations. You ever hear, like, man, these stinking millennials. (laughs) And the millennials are like, whatever, boomer. (laughs) And then I'm Gen X, and we're just like, I don't know, whatever. But we, we blame one another, like, where's this country going? And like, how could you have handed us this future? And like, all these kinds of things. Think about how we, how, not, I don't say we, how people speak about people that, that disagree on different issues. Like, whatever, whatever position you may hold on things like, like, let's look at the most hot-button things right now, right? Gun control and legislation. Abortion. You look at the, how, the, how the, the two different perspectives, how they speak about one another as if we're not talking about like real people behind the issues. You know? If I were to zero in a little bit more to get even more specific, like think about how people speak or maybe let's, let's go behind this. Let's go into the thoughts, like how people think about the drug addict who's panhandling or the young lady walking into Planned Parenthood or the person whose skin is a different shade than yours or the person on the website that you should not be looking at in the first place or the person with mental illness who's crying out for help. I could keep going. But our culture, we speak so poorly of one another. And it's rooted in the same stuff. It's an ancient problem. It comes down to similar things we see in the disciples of Jesus. It, 
it's still rooted in self-absorption. It's rooted in being, feeling like you're superior to other people. It's rooted in seeing one another for what they stand for, or what they're claiming to believe, or what they want to be called, or how they want to be viewed, or what political party they're in. Instead of seeing one another as humans who maybe are different, who hold different beliefs and different structures, who everybody comes from somewhere, and so you kind of are where you are for a reason, that kind of thing. And so this pattern we see in our culture, we see the rootedness of it even in the disciples here. And really, you want to know where it comes from? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when sin and death entered into the world, and that's where it starts. If you read, God's like, okay, here's what's, here's what's going to happen now. You're not going to trust me as God. You're not going to trust each other, even down to husband and wife. You're not going to think very highly of yourself because you're going to be riddled with shame. And even the earth around you is going to work against you. So when you have a hurricane come through and mess up your existence, you know why. Like All of it finds its root in the same thing. All of it is why Jesus came to, to save us. And so here in this moment, who needs a savior? Well, the man born blind needs a savior. The 12 disciples need a savior. All of us need a savior. It's all, like all of this is Jesus being like, hey, that's why I'm here. That's why passages like this, anything about Jesus and who he is, that's why I say it's true north for us. We're like, oh yeah, that's what's going on here. And in saving us, part of what he does is he teaches us to see the image of God in everyone. And not just what they present with. Not just their political affiliations or their positions on different issues or their skin color or how they dress or how much money they make or don't make or the struggles that they have fallen into and have taken them captive or the forms of brokenness that we're just born with. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to invite you into my kingdom, and I'm going to teach you to, to stop letting that be the prime, like number one thing that you think of when you look at someone or when you speak of someone. I'm going to teach you that, hey, that addict that's panhandling and that young lady walking into Planned Parenthood, that person with different skin color than you or that dresses different than you or just lives life differently than you. Hey, that person with mental illness that's crying out for help. All of those people, you're made in the same image. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. That is, that is what I want to teach you to be the lead thing that you see. And that changes how we interact with each other. That, that changes how we speak to people and how we speak about people. It, it changes how we engage in our differences. It changes everything. And so we see Jesus model for us the life we were intended to live before sin and death came in and broke everything. He's like, no, let me, sh- let me show you what the kingdom of God looks like. Let me show you what not only your future in heaven looks like, but also what your very present reality can look like now. And if we were to adopt this perspective and to imitate and morph and change into like a Christ-like lifestyle, 
then the church will become known for these, these kinds of interactions. And that's what we want, right? Like we, we want to be the safe place. We want to be the place of redemption and hope and grace and love. We, do, we don't want to be the place of self-absorption or superiority or seeing people just as their descriptors. We want to be the place where the level, like the ground is level for all of us. So that's a lot in one question, right? But that's kind of what's going on here in this story. And so notice that Jesus, verse 3, there's a lot of ways he could have reacted. And I wonder if there's a part of him that's like, hey, let me roll it back a little bit. He didn't scold them. He didn't condemn them. He to me like, guys, how dense are you? That's my take on things. But Jesus, of course, has a much better take. Look at what he says. He just answers the question. Verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus, always the best answerer, says so much in that one response. The first part of it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Okay, So that kind of common way of thinking in the ancient Near East where they connected suffering to sin, that like because you sinned, God is going to like pay you back for it. Jesus uproots that in this one response. He's like, no, God's not like a payback kind of God. That's not really how, how it works. Now, granted, the brokenness that this man carries found its origins in Genesis 3, just like the brokenness that you and I carry. It, it surfaces differently in all of our lives. So for this man, one of the ways that his that one of the ways that the brokenness of sin surfaces is through his blindness. For the disciples in this moment, it's their self-absorption and pride. For someone else, it, it, it could be a, a number of different issues. All of us have it surface in different ways. So Jesus is not denying the fact that like all of the forms of brokenness we carry, they all find their roots in the same place. But what he's saying is. God is not a payback kind of God. God's not like, oh, you're going to do this, where I'm going to do this. That'll show you, you know. But that was sort of the subtext there. It was sort of the attitude. And so he's like, no, that's, that's not how God works. You know, the source of the, this man's blindness and the disciples' vanity and, our, and all of our own problems, you know, our own addictions and issues and our, even the fact that, like, we choose, like, like violence is our solution to everything, Right? All that finds its origins in Genesis 3. And so really, all of this kind of started in the same place. So it's not that this man sinned or his parents. Look at what he says. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay? Jesus looks at this man and his blindness as an opportunity I feel like that is so important for us to like, like sit in a little bit, you know. He's like, no, it's not. It's not that his parents messed up or that he messed up. Like, this is an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed in his life. 
That's a radical perspective on suffering in any form, isn't it? As opportunity. So this is a chance for God's work to be displayed. This is a chance for the kingdom of God to show up in a tangible way. This is a way to preview the future that we all have. This is a way to invite people into something bigger than themselves. And so if we, if we hit pause on this story for a second, we think about our own lives. If God sees our struggles as opportunity, maybe we should get on board with that. You know? Like maybe one of the reasons why we have this story is to shift the way that you and I are looking at the things that we're going through or the things that we're walking through with other people. Or even just the, like, what do we want the tone of our ministry here in Baton Rouge to be? Like, hey, everyone, bring all your forms of brokenness in because we just see them as opportunities for the works of God to be displayed in us. So come on, whatever it is. We're not afraid of anything that you have to bring. So someone comes in, they say, here's, here's what I've been through. Here's what I'm going through. Here's what my family is dealing with. Here's what I can't seem to get past. Here's what I'm working through with my counselor. We're like, fantastic. Every one of those opportunities for the works of God to be displayed, every single one of them, what would change, you know? What would change if that's how we began to see difficulty? What would change if we got to the point where we loved and trusted Jesus so much that that's like our default when we face difficulty? Like, man, what an opportunity this is. I'm not saying it's, it's easy, you know, to get there. I'm not even saying that, like, when something bad happens, it may take us a process to work through, but... But what if that's the landing point for us? What if that's our goal? Is to love and trust Jesus so much with whatever's going on that we say, man, what? This is, this is hard. This is confusing. This is painful. But what an opportunity to display the works of God. As we deal with whatever it may be, I feel like that has to be like what. Like, that's what we're wanting to be formed among us. Is to be a place where that is, like, that's the true attitude of the people of God. So Jesus says, hey, it's not payback. But it's an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed in his life. And he says this in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so he's talking about him being the light of the world. The night part that he's talking about, that's his, his crucifixion and death. But then the light will come back into the world. He's like, okay, so while the world is, is lit up, we need to be about the work of the one who sent him, the work of the Father. And what is the work of the Father? Well, he shows us in verse 6 
Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Okay? Now, again, another time where Jesus does something that to us is very unorthodox. And there's, I haven't come across a single commentary that can explain the making of mud and all that kind of stuff. They're like, we don't really know. That's not the point. The point is, the man can see. That in the hands of Jesus, there is healing. That all the forms of brokenness that we carry with us can be healed in the hands of Jesus. And I feel like this needs to be said. You know, there are, there are times when the healing that we want, um, sometimes it happens now, and sometimes it doesn't happen now. Sometimes we are praying and believing for healing of whatever it may be. And sometimes that happens this side of death. And sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't happen, it is a reminder that sin and death are real. It's a reminder of the brokenness around us. And sometimes that's how God chooses to let things play out. And so there are times when that's just how it goes. But there are also times when God brings that healing and that restoration. And in those times, it is a preview of something to come. And so right now, until Jesus returns, we're living with both of those scenarios. We're praying for healing, and sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't happen, it's this reminder that sin and death are real. When it does happen, it's a forecasting what is to come. And so the healing that God offers us, it's sometimes now. But it's always in the future, forever. See, on the other side of death, there is guaranteed healing. And so even if God says no now... He's saying, no, I'm not going to heal you now. I'm going to heal you later. Sometimes he says, I'm going to heal you now as a reminder to everyone else that, hey, there is a later that's coming as well. And so whether it's now in this life or in the life to come, healing is a guaranteed thing. And that's easier to cope with when he's healing you now, isn't it? It's a little bit harder when he's like, no, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to leave this in life. But for us, as the people of God who live by faith and not by sight, we can come to him and ask for healing, but we can pray that open-handed prayer of Jesus in the garden, right? This is what I would like to see happen, but it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. Knowing that God can use healing now or healing later, he can use all of that to communicate deep and beautiful things, that all of that is the work of God being displayed in our lives. Because our hope is not found in our circumstances getting better or worse. Here, our hope is found in a resurrected Jesus. And since he is alive, it means our hope is always alive. So it doesn't really matter what happens to us now because we live by something that is greater.
So he heals the man. Now look at verse 8. Because it doesn't just stop there. Sometimes like he heals them and they run off and it's like, okay, let's go on to the next thing. But look, we get a little bit more of the story. In verse 8, the neighbors, those who had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. And others said, no, but he's like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. See, that's the origin of that phrase. You didn't know that was biblical, but it is. So verse 10, they said to him, And how are your eyes opened? And he said, The man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. See, our, our healing doesn't stop with our healing. Like, when you, when you accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior, when that relationship begins, and if it has not begun... For you, it's as easy as this. Like when you, by faith, believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he came to save you from sin and death and to live with him forever, that he is the Savior who laid down his life so that you could live forever. When, when that happens, you are healed. Some of your healing plays out immediately, and, but all of it is for eternity. But there is a, like you're healed at that point. But it doesn't end with your healing because when you when someone is truly healed, here's how you know. Is they're like, no, so Jesus did this, and Jesus is the like, I want to heal everyone kind of God. And so you become a part of this like bringing others to him movement. That's, that's how you know that you're healed. If there's no desire in you to bring other people to Christ, then you have to, I'm not saying that you're not really healed or saved, but that, Maybe you don't really understand this exactly what has happened. Because the more our understanding deepens and deepens and deepens, the more we realize, like, this is a real thing. That is for everyone. But everyone doesn't know, and so everyone needs to know this. Like, he has given us, like, this invitation. He said, hey, go, go, go bring this to everybody. And so the longer we walk with him, the deeper our understanding is of our own healing the more magnificent this invitation becomes. We're like, no, there's always room. There's always room. There's always room. And so this man is now healed, and people are like, what's going on? He's like, let me tell you the story. So he tells them the story, and they're like, get the Pharisees involved, and there's like this back and forth, and they're like, there's no way, and it was on the Sabbath, and there's all that goofy Pharisee stuff they do. And look at verse 24. For the second time they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, talking about Jesus, this man's a sinner. And he said, Look, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I, though I was blind, now I see. And so when you have this healing story and people are like, like poking you and they're like prodding and they're like, what about this? What about this? And how do you know there's a God? And how do you know he did this? And what about this and this and this and this? And you can be like, look. I may not be able to answer every theological like, question that you throw at me. I may not be able to like, tell you all the parts of the Bible or defend the Hebrew word for this or the Greek word for this or all these kinds of things. Here, here's what I know. I used to be dead and now I'm alive. I used to be blind, but now I can see. I used to be this wounded, broken, self-absorbed, superior person who only looked at other people for the label that they were presenting. 
And a part of my healing is God's teaching me to see you as made in the image of God. Maybe you just don't know it yet. Here's what I know. I know that what I have experienced is consistent with what the Bible teaches. And that Jesus offers you the same thing. I'm just here to tell you that. It's not our job to save anybody. It's not our, it's not our job to... Um, it's not our job to do God's job, right? It's our job to just be the, the faithful ones who are just telling the story. And so in the hands of Jesus, that healing comes, but healing always leads to testimony. It does. And testimony leads to other people realizing that they too need that same Savior. God just does this miraculous thing. And so it's that, that phrase, I forget who said it, but the gospel comes to you on its way to someone else. It's, it's just constantly like trickling forward. But the thing is, if we get too caught up in our world and our, that appeal to our own vanity, we will default to being self-absorbed. We will default to being superior. We will default to seeing people not for the image of God they were made in, but just for their different Positions and issues and struggles. And we won't, we won't walk in our own healing and we definitely won't share it with others. So we have to have those moments where we listen to the Spirit saying, hey, you need to get the compass out. Be reminded what your life is all about. Be reminded of who Jesus is and who you are because of who he is. What is, what is God doing? What are the works of God being displayed in our lives? How is our brokenness and our healing on display so that other people are like, well, I want that too. So, so much of it comes down to, do, do we realize what he's doing in our lives? Do we realize the healing work that has been done in our salvation and that is being done as we walk with him more and more and the healing that will be complete on the other side, the deeper that understanding goes, the more we will see all the other things fall into place. And so if you've never said yes to that invitation that Jesus is offering, if you've never looked at him and said, I need, I need the healing that you offer me, you just need to tell him that. Like, I don't have to repeat a prayer. We don't have to have a series of meetings. It's by grace through faith. And if that's, if that's where you are, you just tell him that today. And if you tell him that today, don't, don't have your next step be to keep it to yourself forever. You need to tell somebody. There'll be a lot of people hanging around after this. I'll be here hanging around. After, don't leave without that. But if you have said yes to him, are you, are you recognizing that all your struggles and all the things you're going through right now, that those are opportunities for opportunities for the works of God to be displayed in your life? And have you fallen into that pattern like the disciples where your own vanity is being so appealed to you, preventing you from seeing what God is doing? So I think it all fits together, and only in such a way that you know how it applies to your own life. Those are my favorite things about teaching and preaching is I'm like, okay, I'm going to like put this out there and then you got to be a steward of it at this point. I take it into my life, you take it into your life. It's not my job to convince you. 
It's the spirit at work among us. So that's one reason why we do we structure the service the way that we do is we we sing a little bit on the on the the other side of the sermon to kind of give you a chance to say, okay, God, what are you saying to me? Like, what's what's my what are some of my takeaways today? If for you receiving communion is going to help you be obedient, and we have uh, communion being served down here as an option, you don't have to you don't have to go and receive it, but. For some, there's something about receiving the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, which will be said to you as you're taking it. Like, There's something about that connection that happens that's really significant. Maybe you want to sing, maybe you want to pray, maybe, you know, we'll just, all those things will be happening in the next couple minutes because we want to give you a chance. Because once we say our blessing, when we scatter, you know, your Sunday launches back up again. And so we want to like, like hey, let's, let's get to a good place before we dismiss and let you respond to what God may be stirring within you. And so if you want to receive communion, this aisle right here is kind of the, we're going to go, uh, we're going to go cl- clockwise. Is that how that would be for y'all? Um, we're going to go this way, kind of using this aisle that way. But as people move around, this is your time with the Lord. So let's stand together as our musicians come back. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you for the gift of stories like this. Where we see the, we see that same compassion that we saw last week, you know, where Jesus groaned before he brought healing. That that's your response to the brokenness that we bring. And while you groan with us, you also have this hope of knowing what God can do with our struggles with our shortcomings, with our addictions, with our failures, with our uh, confusion, with our doubt, with our fear. All of those things are such opportunity for that healing work to be put on display. And so in the next few moments as we sing and pray and receive communion and just just kind of process the all the songs and scriptures up to this point, May we be able to sense your leadership clearly and may we have the faith and the love to respond. We love you very much. We thank you for all of this. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. The communion table is open and ready whenever you are. And so let's just sing and pray and respond for a few minutes together before we go.